Hello, and you're very welcome to All In, our brand new business show here on Joe, backed by AIB. Each week, we'll be taking you through business news and trends in the company of some of Ireland's most successful and savvy business people. This week, we're looking at leadership. What does it take to make a great leader? Are they born or made? And how can you inspire and motivate the people around you? Well, our panel have the answers, and they are Jane Gallagher, the co-founder and COO of Cogs and Marvel, a brand and events agency that counts some of the biggest tech companies in the world among its clients. And we also have a veteran VC investor who sold his first startup for 26 million and his second for 55 million. So it's safe to say he knows a thing or two about good investments. It's Brian Caulfield. We also have a very special all-in trailblazer interview with the man behind Irish global success story, Car Trawler. His latest mission is to deliver takeaways to your door by drone. Now, if you haven't already, you might want to hit subscribe to get the full show on podcast on YouTube. We're at allin underscore business on Twitter. You can find us on LinkedIn too. And to get in touch, tweet or post using the hashtag allinbusiness. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. So Jane and Brian, let's start with the basics here. Good leader, born or made? Made. In my mind, it's it's made. I think everyone has some sort of leadership within them, but it's how you actually grow into that. So I think it is made by influenced by people that you have led you, and also by the team that you have around you. And what would you think about that, Brian? I'm not a fan of the born or made question generally. I think when we ask it about entrepreneurs or leaders, we're kind of asking the wrong question. I mean, my take would be, uh, you know, actually quite similar to Jane's. I think there are characteristics that are innate to people that, you know, mean they have the potential to be a, a, a great leader. But I think a lot of it is learned, you know. There, there are also people who aren't suited to being leaders at all, but the great leaders learn to be great leaders. And I guess a key, key part of that might be knowing when you're not really the right leader at the right time. I think it's interesting that both of you have had non traditional leadership roles, as in non-CEO roles. Uh, Jane, you're the co-founder and the COO. And Brian, I know you were CEO before and stepped down, for want of a better term, stepped to the side to be the CTO. Um, Shed a bit of light for us, if you would, on, on why you both chose those roles. So I I think that highlights a really, really important point in conversations about leadership generally that, you know, the leader for one time and one moment is not necessarily the leader for the next kind of part of the journey, you know. And in my case, um, in my first business, I always knew that a time would come when I would not be the right person to, to lead the organization anymore. I kind of had it in my head that that would come, you know, when we were at maybe 500 people or something like that. Uh, It actually came sooner. um, And I suppose it came sooner because of a little bit of a crisis in the business that meant that, you know, that, that, that I had to take on, if you like, more of a, a burden. And I kind of realized at that point that I needed somebody to kind of help me bear that burden and that the, the, the sensible thing to do was to recruit somebody who was going to be a, capable of managing an expanding team um, and, you know, who, who, who would be the, 
the, the leader for the next phase of the journey. Okay, and Jane, for yourself, would you feel similarly, because I know you've got Roisin, your co-founder, even in terms of when you're starting out in a new business, deciding who does what, where does leadership come into play there? I think we started the company in 2006 and it was two of us in a in a small little apartment, the, the typical story of the entrepreneur. And I think we grew it organically ourselves. Um, you know, the events business is, is one of those ones where you have to build up relationships with your clients and trust. And I think when we actually started to expand the company, we we quickly realised and what we didn't know um, and what where we, we shone. We're very different people and I think we both had amazing strengths, but I think neither of us thought we're the one to lead the company. So, um, you know, Roisin went out to the US and set up the US office, which is tremendously successful. And I stayed as the, the COO to build the operations team, to build up the team so that we had the people who could understand how we run our business and who I could grow into following us on the path that we were going on. So it was a strength of mine, the operations, and I still absolutely love it. And that made it easier for me to grow the team and to grow the actual business as opposed to, you know, just the two of us focusing on the one thing. And in terms of your leadership styles now, obviously there are lots of different terms thrown around for leadership styles, uh, autocratic, democratic, transformational, etc. What are your views on those categories? Is it all nonsense and not really applicable to the real world or would you maybe identify as one of those types of leaders? Um, I mean, I, I don't think it's nonsense. I think there absolutely are different leadership styles and different leadership styles can actually work in different circumstances. You, you know, if if the slaves are still chained to the oars, then, you know, a, a kind of the, the beatings will... has emerged. <laughs> the, yes, exactly. The beatings will continue until morale improves, may actually work as a leadership style. And if, for example, you've got a, you know, a very, very small team, then a sort of very detail-oriented uh, autocratic leadership style may work. That's absolutely not going to work if you really want to scale an organization dramatically. You know, if you want to scale an organization dramatically, then what you need is empowered leaders below you, you know. Um, I think if I characterize my leadership style, I, I think I would be hopefully very open, uh, nurturing of people, Right and and really seeking to develop people and give them opportunities to develop. I think what the really great leaders actually do is they create a framework for people that allows them to make decisions for themselves. So you give them a framework in terms of strategy that enables them to make strategic decisions. And you also give them, you know, an ethical and moral framework that, that enables them to make decisions in the context of the values of the business. And where would you see what you've just said there? How does that tie in with um, learning to give up control, the how and the when? Because I'm sure we can all think of a few very well-known um, tech, especially tech leaders who maybe 
are known for micromanaging Steve Jobs, for example. Um, as you've grown and scaled, yeah. Jane, how have you learned I to step back or have you? I have, yeah. um, although sometimes people would argue that I haven't. Um, I think the biggest thing for for me and for the business that we were in was, was actually letting go because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us feel we do it our way and that works. You know, our business is people and our you know we don't have a product. We're selling the team that work with us. And I think that was probably one of the hardest things for myself and Ocean was to step back and let them sort of fly, as you say. You know, my leadership skill would be very much lead by example. You know, neither myself or Roshan have our own office. We sit in the middle of the team, so we're, we're there, we're accessible, as you say, and guiding, the bringing the team along with us as you're saying, make the decisions. You know, we're there if you need advice, but and and we will always stand behind the team. You know, there's times when it's the wrong decision, but the last thing you do as a leader is, you know, criticise someone for making a decision, all but it might be the wrong one, They and if they've worked it through in their own head. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think growing a business, particularly when it's around people, can be very difficult because there are so many different styles. So my style and what I found is quite difficult is my style with different people within the organisation. You have to tailor how you lead different people. Mm-hmm. You know, we have some very outgoing people. I have some very quiet people who work on my team who are absolutely amazing. So you have to actually judge how to do that. And I think the decision making is great because you can't make all the decisions yourself, you know, and you have to understand that sometimes mistakes are made. But look, we'll fix it, we'll get on with it. And I think that makes a massive difference that the team feel that they can make a mistake without there being massive consequences to it. Yeah. Oh, I suppose the thing about that is that in an office environment, that's one thing, but you're in events. And when I'm not here, I'm with yeah. Web Summit. We're running pretty big events as well. So I know a little bit about the event cycle and being on site and the stress that that involves. How does your approachability and open plan office or or no office for you, how does that transfer to, okay, I'm on site and there are thousands and thousands of people and and things here to to manage and not micromanage? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, you have to step back and and let people do it. And and again, it's probably one of the things that I struggle most with. You see something going, okay, I'm going to do that. But actually, it's there's a team member who's probably on it already or knows about it that you can't just dive in and I've made mistakes don't get me wrong where I've done it and and come back and gone oh shouldn't have done that and I think the biggest thing is when you're on site as you know you know you've the web summit in November you've got thousands of people it's so stressful you do make mistakes and particularly as a leader you will snap you will have times where it's you're quite abrupt because you need to you've got 15 things to get done and I feel once you acknowledge it mm-hmm. and you go back and you go, sorry if I was short there, I was just really under pressure. I just needed to get that done. I'm really sorry. And that probably is one of the biggest things that I've learned because we all do it. We're human. Yeah. And just acknowledging it because you have a team member who will go off and could be extremely upset. You don't realise how they feel. So you have to be very conscious of your own, how you actually conduct yourself, particularly on site and manage, manage the team there. The other thing is you have to have a bit of fun because it is so stressful. And I think if you're seen running around like a headless chicken, that transfers right the way down. So if you can stay calm and and deal with one thing at a time, I think it, it empowers the team to go, OK, this is OK, we're under control. And would that ring true for you, Brian? How have you managed leadership stress and not transferring that to the masses? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, I, firstly, I completely agree. Like at a big event like Web Summit, I guarantee you there are not just one or two mistakes. There are thousands of mistakes no made. No comments. <laughs> and, um, at yeah. every event. Uh, every event. And the, um, you know, the, the, you have to have an environment in which people make decisions because the worst thing you can do in most circumstances is not make a decision. So you need a scenario where people feel that they're able to make a call and that if they get the call wrong, it's not that you won't have a conversation about it. Well, you know, why did that go wrong? But it's it's not a case of kind of punishment being meted out because, uh, be, be because a mistake has been made. You know, leadership is not about getting everything right. It's about getting more right than wrong, you know. Um, you know, I, 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 uh, I think we also need to think a little bit about what do we mean when we talk about a great leader? Um, I saw something recently where Napoleon was being identified as statistically the best general ever. And I kind of thought, well, maybe we're asking the wrong question there. Maybe the best general ever is the one who fought the fewest wars, you know? Yes, and the wrong metrics. Exactly, the, 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 the wrong metrics. And you're, you're framing the question in, in, in the wrong way in many cases, you know? And who is getting it right for you guys at the moment? Who would you see as a, as a really good, strong leader right now? I think I've I've had the pleasure of working with some of some brilliant leaders within the tech business. You know, John Hurley is a, is a man that I've always looked up to and I've worked with him since 2006 in his LinkedIn Google days Ireland, and LinkedIn yeah. and I worked with him back in Google. And what I always noticed about him was no matter what was going on, no matter how busy it was, he would always address you, have a smile, how are you? You could be in the thick of things and he'll come up and go, how are you doing? because he would understand. And I've always admired that in him. And I've always felt that if you can have that approach, it calms every situation. And I suppose he's, he probably is one of, the, one of the great leaders that I would admire in Ireland at the moment. Okay, great. And what about you, Brian? I, I think, unfortunately, we're in a period where certainly, maybe less so from a business point of view, but certainly from a political perspective, there's actually a huge deficit of, of leadership in, in, in the world, you know. Um, I mean, if I think of great, uh, great business leaders, actually a guy that probably nobody will have heard of, a guy called Ken Thierry, who ran a company called DeVita in the US for 20 years. And um, it was a kidney dialysis business. At the time that he took over the leadership of that organization, it was losing money hand over fist. The reimbursement for dialysis was set at a level that kind of fundamentally meant you couldn't make money. And he transformed that business. He was able to reduce the number of staff but give the staff who remained a real sense of ownership and real belief in the importance of what they were doing and, and a set of values around making their customers, uh, you, you know, feel good and feel happy. 
He was also legendary because at kind of company gatherings, he'd descend from the ceiling dressed as a musketeer, you know. So talk about having having fun and and making an impression, you know. But he absolutely transforms that business. um, And he did it through empowering the people who worked in the business and through giving them a framework and, and, and being very clear about about what we're trying to achieve, you know. And in a situation where we apply all of that and everything's going smoothly and you're a great leader, how do you then keep your feet on the ground? Not let it go to your head. I think you you have to always think one of the things that I would always do is, you know, you never ask someone to do something you wouldn't do yourself and you do have to sound check yourself. Um, having said that, you have to also understand what you what you you have people who are better at doing certain things than you are. So I'm not saying that you can do everything, but I think you just have to sometimes put yourself into into the team's shoes and go, OK, you know, I know I'm saying we want to get this done tonight. It's going to take five hours. Let's I'll be with you on it, you know, because you have deadlines you have to meet. And I think it's also realising what you don't know. And I think that as a leader is probably one one of the hardest things you've got to do. And surround yourself by people who can do things better than you and who you appreciate that they can do it better than you. There's no point trying to hide behind somebody and trying to take the credit for it, because ultimately that's not a good leader. Mm. Okay, and I guess we focused a lot here on um, being a leader in your own company or if you started your own company, etc. But what if you are already embedded with the staff, you're um, a staff member who gets promoted, we'll say. How do you keep good relationships with people who you were in a team with, maybe you're now managing the team? How does that work? I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges for for people within, within the teams because I think... The approach is it's slowly, it's, if it's done slowly and integrated slowly, then people will respect that person. It can be very difficult because they people were your peers and all of a sudden you could potentially be their boss. And it is a very hard situation to be in. I'm, I haven't been in that situation, but I do know that people really do struggle with it because you do have to cut some of the ties because it, because people, you know, we're all human and somebody that, that was your, you know, your great mate and all of a sudden you need to actually direct them and guide them can be very difficult. So it's something you just need to monitor. And again, it happens slowly. It's not a split decision overnight because you need to build up that respect from, from the rest of the team. And what do you think, Brian? Can you be a boss and a friend at the same time? Um. Yes, I think you can, but you do need to, you know, maintain boundaries at some level. I, I, I think, I think I can say with a fair degree of confidence that many of the people that I worked with in my first business, or you know, or subsequently. Uh, remain good friends, you know, and there are people that, uh, that, that, that I worked with that, you know, the best part of 20 years ago, and I go out for a pint with them religiously at least once or twice a year, you know. So I think you can, uh, you can have that, that relationship, but there always needs to be just that little bit of distance in relation to decision making. Because unfortunately, you do find yourself from time to time in situations where maybe somebody that you genuinely like 
you know, you need to have a conversation with them about, you know, about their, the, the, whether it's the quality of the work or of their work or the, the kind of their level of engagement in, in, in a task or whatever it happens to be. And that's just, that just goes with, that goes with the territory, as they say, you know. I guess the person on the other side of that conversation, um, maybe if they're being chastised by, a friend slash boss, uh, they always have the rest of the team to go back to and maybe kind of yeah. have a little moan and a complaint too. But yeah. you don't if you're at the top. Can it be a lonely place to be sometimes? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think le- leadership can be very lonely. And certainly when you're sort of at the very top of an organization and you really don't have peers within the organization, you know, with with whom you can you can unload a little bit. And for that reason, I think it's really, really important for leaders in organizations to 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 have one or more mentors, uh, potentially to have a chairman of the board that they that they you know that they know and respect and, you know, can have those those kind of difficult conversations with, you know. Um, having said that, I think, you know, there's a perception that a leader should never show weakness or should never, uh, you know, show emotion even. And I absolutely don't believe that at all. I, I, I think people will generally actually respect a leader who, um, you know, who's human. Le- leaders are human, 100%. you know. They're not, yeah. uh, they're not automatons. Um. I think, I, yeah, I agree 100%. You know, trying to, to put on a brave face the whole time is, is not really, in my mind, it's not really showing leadership. It's, it's having the ability to be true and to show when you're stressed, to show when you're upset, that shows the rest of the team. Do you know what? They're human. It's it's not it's not somebody to be feared or to to be worried about. You you're you're part of a team, and whether you're at the top or whether you're at the bottom, everybody counts and everybody has feelings. And as you say, we're all human. And you don't want to project something unrealistic no. either. You know, no. man or woman of stone. No, there's times yeah. when you have to put on the brave face. Come, it'll all be fine. It'll be fine, <laughs> and you you know that you'll get there, and because that gives people confidence. Mm-hmm. But there are times when you know you just need to be yourself. You know, because you can't have a mask on the whole the entire time. It's going to slip. Well, that seems like a great place to leave it. Jane and Brian, thank you so much. And do stay with us because, of course, in just a few minutes, we're going to come back to you for the one to watch. Now, when my next guest tried to order a takeaway to be delivered to his house just outside Dublin, he was told it was too far away. Most of us would have gotten into the car and gone to collect the food and thought no more of it. But he had a slightly more radical approach, setting up his own drone company to deliver takeaways right to your door. It is a big challenge, but having already built and flipped two successful tech companies, Elan Technologies and Car Trawler, the clever money is on Bobby Healy to make it happen. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business. So, Bobby, you're very welcome. And as I just mentioned there, delivery service didn't stretch as far as your house. Is it fair to say that's the reason we're sitting here today? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you can't get your bag of chips, you have to build a company to get your bag of chips. Um, You know, it's a a fact that... uh, Online food services, they have to work in very densely populated areas, which is only 20% of the population. And I live in Rathfarnham and can't get my bag of chips in Rathfarnham. So 
had to build a company to solve that problem. It's interesting that you immediately saw a gap in the market. I think most mm. of us would go get the food and probably maybe complain a little bit, but never think about it ever again. Yeah. What is it about your thinking that sets you apart? It's not the gap in the market. You, you figure that out later with the data. What you figure out is there's a core technology there, which is a drone. And if, if anyone owns a drone, uh, as, as I own many of them and crashed and lost many of them, you you see that this core technology can actually do something. It's a mule. You know, what would you do with a mule? You'd get it to carry stuff. And drones are... They fly so fast, they're so commoditized now in terms of technology. So I, I know for sure that the trigger for me was this core device can, can be made to carry things and it can be made to do that autonomously. And so then you think about what problems can you solve with that core, you know, piece of code or core piece of tech. And for me, it wasn't really the fact that I couldn't get the delivery, it was more about the size of the market and you look at the size of the online food market it's a it's 120 billion dollar industry today growing to 350 billion uh, by 2030 but with a giant problem of cost and deliverability in other words you just can't deliver in a cost effective way a low a low value product which is what food is so it, it, it was very obvious very quickly the size of the market the size of the opportunity and and how to get it done it's a big market, but it's also a densely populated one. And the mm. only people even trialing this kind of stuff right now are the likes of Amazon and Google. Mm. I'm trying to think of a polite way to ask you, <laughs> who in their right mind decide to take on Amazon and Google? Small companies always beat big companies, always. Um, it's easier with a good team in a small context with a single mission, a single focus to outpace any anybody. And so long as you don't need a huge amount of capital cash to get things done and you can do with a small team, I would always bet on a good team, to, a small team to beat a bigger company. And I mean, Google Alphabet are incredibly successful at engineering, getting things done. But at the end of the day, the, the blast radius for Alphabet if something went wrong or something damaged their brand would be so much greater than a startup or an entrepreneurial approach to things that they're going to act far more cautiously and far more slowly. In any event, they're not competitors because they're going to, they have a B2C brand for their drone delivery program. And essentially that means that they compete with Uber Eats, Deliveroo, with all of, they're competing with everyone. And we're just powering everyone. So we're like the arms dealer of logistics here. We're giving our stack to everyone, every restaurant, every aggregator, mm -hmm. and our fleet of drones power everybody. So we're, we're kind of keeping everyone happy. And you already have a partner. We have Flipdish. loads of partners. Yeah, I mean, right. so Flipdish, we did a deal with Flipdish last year. And it basically, you know, Flipdish are, provide the tech inside the restaurant, but also the consumer delivering app. Mm -hmm. So with that one integration, it means that there's a, over a thousand restaurants now in Ireland that straight away have drone delivery. So the moment we go live, everyone in those restaurants can get drone delivery. And how important was that to you then? You didn't obviously have to set up the software side of it from scratch, yeah. you're looking after the logistics. Would have been a lot harder, presumably, if you'd had to do both sides yourself. Yeah, just it's wider. It's less focused. I mean, we're what we want to be is pervasive. We want we want drone delivery to be as common as running water everywhere. And so you focus on just doing that one thing, and you let everybody else do all the ancillary and satellite efforts that are involved in making that available to consumers. So. 
you don't need to compete with Flipdish or you don't need to compete with Deliveroo. You partner with them and, and you just focus on that one key component. And that's the small companies should always do that. Even in car trawler, we focused, focused, focused. We only did one thing. We could have done lots of other things, but keep it narrow and, and win 90% of the narrow part. And, and it's a far easier, not just far easier, but it's far smarter to do because, you know, why would you create a startup business that immediately pisses off everyone that you want to partner with? Well, it might piss off one person, the regulator. You've had a two-year conversation, shall we call Nearly it, three. at this point. Nearly yeah. three. Yeah. To get this up and running. Um, how has that, I'd imagine that's been pretty difficult. How have you handled that? No, no, actually, it's been quite the opposite. They've been very supportive. Okay. Uh, I mean, the, the regulator's role is one of safety. Uh, safety. Mm. So their job is make sure that there's never any risk to the population we fly over. And that's where their remit stops. Um, later on, there's other issues, right? There's issues of privacy, of security, of, you know, all these other things, right? But, but the regulator in Ireland, the, I, the IAA, uh, have been incredibly supportive. And, and I remember... It's nearly three years ago now I sat down and had, uh, had lunch with one of the senior guys in the IAA and, and simply asked him, you know, let's say, supposing, supposing somebody was thinking somebody. about, you know, <laughs> yeah. someone, a friend of a friend yeah. was thinking about doing something like this, you know, what would be the position of the regulator? Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, they pretty much said... We've been waiting on someone to come through the door with a plan and with right. a team. We've been expecting this. And to be honest with you... That must have been lovely. Like well, it was. You know, once I picked yeah. myself up off the floor, <laughs> yeah. I said I panicked them. I said, Shite, if they're going, if, they're, if they have that position, then how many other Bobby Healy's are there building right. a team, building a plan? Yeah, yeah. So I need to get going. Pick up your pace. You know? Yeah. I've, I've always been worried about the pace. I've always been thinking... I certainly didn't think I was too early to market. A lot of people think I'm too early to market. Mm. Uh, I, I think the opposite. I think I'm probably a year behind. Um, but we've caught up. We've done a great job. And, yeah, no, the, I mean, m most of the world thinks that I'm, a cr I'm crazy when I talk about this plan. But you will see drones in the air in Ireland the end of this year, start of next year. Mm. And when you see it, you will immediately, the penny drops. For anyone that sees our aircraft doing what it does, it's, it's instant. The reaction is instant. Obviously, it's spectacular, but it also goes to, you know what, this is really practical. This is actually far more sensible than using the roads for delivery. Mm. Mm. And you mentioned there are people thinking you're crazy. It seems to be something that comes up a lot in these Trailblazer interviews. And I'm wondering how crucial a component people thinking you're crazy is to success. How many other people thought you were crazy? And I suppose most importantly, did investors think you were crazy at the start? Yeah. Yeah, it was uh, for Mana. It was very difficult to get my initial. Not very difficult, to, but but difficult. To, I mean, most most investors they're very diligent people. They don't just spread their money around easily. So they they all get to the regulation question. They all get to will you ever be allowed to do this? You know. So it was actually helpful in that context that Alphabet and Amazon were already talking about doing it. I mean, Alphabet have spent nearly half a billion dollars on their program. So, and already live in Australia, in a small town in Australia. So, so people could see what was there. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, some people would say, 
smart people would say I'm crazy because it takes so much money to build something like this and who the hell do you think you are if Amazon have been trying to do this for seven years and Google have been trying to do it for six years what kind of a lunatic you know thinks that they can get it done in 12 months well, the difference is it's not my first rodeo first of all so mm-hmm. there might be something there that you might need to listen and that was helpful right because a lot of doors would have slammed shut a lot more quickly if I didn't have the previous successes um but it is still quite audacious, you know. But if you look underneath at the detail of Amazon and Alphabet, the reason they've taken so long is because the world hasn't been ready for what they're doing. Mm. And the world is ready now, definitely ready. So. And we may be ready, but a lot of us, myself included, will still be wondering what this is going to look like. So talk me through a scenario where I... Yeah live out in Rathfarnham and I order yeah. food from Mana.Aero today and it's going to be delivered by drone. What does that look like, the drop down? Yeah, um, so the, the aircraft flies at about 80 metres, between 80 and 100 metres, flies at 80 kilometres an hour. So, I mean, at night you won't see it. You'll, you'll get a notification on your phone saying the aircraft has departed with your, you know, chicken chow mein and we'll be there in two minutes, 12 seconds. Our maximum distance will be three minutes. Our average will be about two minutes. So you'll get a notification when we're going to arrive. You'll be able to see the little blue dot, track the aircraft, and then you'll get a notification when we've arrived. And when we've arrived, we're 80 metres up over your house, and then you have to accept. You hit a button to accept delivery. When you accept delivery, the aircraft will descend down to about 10 metres, and then it hovers there, and it lowers the food down to the ground on a biodegradable linen thread. So it's, it's, I mean, it's spectacular to watch. And at mm. night, we have a very high-powered LED to light up a little circle on the ground. It's like a tractor beam or something. It looks beautiful. Um, and it's fun and it's exciting. And there, there isn't a person in the world that isn't going to try this once, at least. Mm. The question is, you know, will they try it twice, three times, four times? And, you know, if you've ever ordered online food, the average delivery time is nearly half an hour in, in Dublin. At peak time, it's over an hour. Yeah. And, you know, fries, burger and fries, which is what everybody wants delivered, does not travel very well for that amount no. of time. <laughs> we will get you your fries. They'll still burn your mouth when they arrive because it'll take literally two minutes. And what will the, the delivery charge be when it does arrive? Will It'll probably be the same as you're currently paying. I mean, everyone, uh, the average around Europe is about three euros delivery charge, be it a delivery charge or a surcharge on a low basket value. So we don't need to charge more for drone delivery than, than we do than a road delivery costs. Mm. And a road delivery on average costs, costs the operator five euros to do simply because of the salary of the driver or the, or the cyclist or whatever. And the fuel. And then, yeah, I mean, everything is expensive, insurance, the whole lot. Um, and it's not scalable. You can't, like I spoke to one restaurant owner up in North Dublin. They have 17 delivery drivers in the evenings on peak, uh, peak days, Saturday and Sunday. And this is just not sustainable. And that's 17 cyclists that are risking their necks on the road or motorbikers. I mean, the, the, the road traffic accidents speak for themselves as well. I mean, in, in Netherlands, in Amsterdam, market online food cyclists, 180 of them last year were carried in ambulances to hospital with severe injuries, 40 of them died. Right. You know, like yeah. it's crazy to use the road to deliver hamburgers. Mm. People would say it's crazy to use the air as well. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot more space up in the air and it's a lot safer to use the air. And in terms of disruptive technology, this wouldn't be the first time in your career that you have been uh, slightly ahead of the curve or doing something people thought was crazy. Um, among your wild stories from, from your tech past, the one that jumped out to me the most was being held up at gunpoint <laughs> in Mexico City when you were... Twice. 
Twice? By the police, yeah. Okay, well, I'm not even going to finish that, that question then. Yeah. Please just tell us about that. Well, so I, I founded my first, my second business in Mexico City, so that was Elan Technologies. And uh, I mean, you followed the action and the action was in Mexico at the time for travel technology, you know, for Latin America. And I look, just, you know, being a, a gringo in, in Mexico City or a beacon. And there was a lot of crime there at the time, it was in 1990. Uh, a lot of crime at the time and, and, and most of the criminals happened to have uniforms on. And yeah, I had a gun pointed in my face, my wallet taken off me. Um, that's just part of the journey, you know. I mean, it's, I mean, if you do business around the world, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna arrive at situations like that. Well, given that you've had that situation in Mexico with Elan Technologies, you then been, built Car Trawler into what it is today, and now you're here with Mana Aero. Um, I'd imagine you're a pretty different Bobby Healy now with this venture than you would have been in any yeah. of your past lives, so to speak? Yeah, so, would so, I mean, I, I would have been the programmer, you know, up, up until now, I would have written most of the code, or at least the early versions of the product. And, you know, that, that was fit for purpose in the last two businesses. It doesn't work now because most of the effort is engineering or it's avionics code. It's stuff that, it's not about the code, it's about the processes and the safety system. So we have a bunch of, Airbus people, a bunch of aeronautical engineers. Like, I, I don't know anything about that. I can write code. Um, so this time I'm writing none of the code. So the, the different Bobby Healy is definitely, like, I'm, I'm not a manager of businesses. I'm a, I'm a leader of people. I'm really good at leading technical teams and getting figuring out what the mission is and, and getting that done. Um, so my role now is very, you know, it's it's pure leadership and you know, evangelizing the business and the plan with investors and with the general public. So it's it's a more fun role. It's way easier, uh, but it's a lot more travel because in the end, this business is going to, when it opens up, it's going to open up in multiple markets simultaneously. And so we're running multiple parallel markets right now where we're talking to regulators. We're looking for teams in each of the markets. And, and once, once we fire the starting gun, which is, early next year, we have to go as quickly as possible in as many markets as possible. So, you know, definitely my role is now less product and more thinking about how do we make this a 10 billion euro business? Mm -hmm. And the way you do that is you go as quickly as possible in as many markets as you can. And that's a weird problem to solve. It's an unusual one. And it obviously takes a pretty strong leader. So what would your leadership advice be to anyone coming along in your trail? I only ever give one piece of advice is don't listen to the naysayers because my whole life I've had people doubt me and still doubt me and still second guess me. And I'm not right about everything always. But if I ever look back at mistakes I've made, it's been, you know, listening to people that are just holding me back and saying, you can't do that. You'll never do that. That won't work. And I always regret, the only regrets I have have been not listening to my own instinct and the people that genuinely that I trust. Mm. Uh, and I've always, not always, but there's been a few mistakes I've made because listening to the wrong people. So not all advice is good advice. No, do take Except your, your advice. <laughs> no, even that, you know. Uh, but definitely my only regrets were around, you know, listening to people not that didn't know what they were yourself. talking about. Yeah. Great. Well, what a perfect note to end it on, Bobby Healy. Thank you so much. I can't wait to see Mana.Aero delivering food to my house right out of the sky. And the best of luck with it. Thank you very much. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business.
Bobby Healy there giving us lots of exciting reasons to order takeaway in the months ahead. Now, we're here in studio with Jane Gallagher of Cogs and Marvel and VC investor Brian Caulfield, who are about to give us their one to watch, the who or what is big in business right now that we should be keeping an eye on in the coming weeks. So, Jane, I'll start with you. What's your one to watch? My one to watch is an amazing woman that we've had the pleasure of working with three years ago in our rebrand called Gillian Horn from The Pudding. She started the company in Limerick and we were probably one of her first clients. She helped us rebrand from Greenlight Events to Cogs and Marvel, from everything from research to developing our website. And she's recently done a deal with a major hotel chain in the US. So she's my one to watch. Fantastic. And you, Brian? Uh, well, I was going to say drone delivery, but uh, but then I saw Bobby Healy, so I can't do that. You so can have two ones to watch. I'll make an exception for you. Yeah. Yeah. Drone, drone delivery, <laughs> for, for sure. And uh, vertical farming. I spent okay. a couple of days this week at a vertical farming technology business in Scotland. I was just absolutely blown away, and I think this is a real technology for the future, environmentally friendly. Um, you know, I just couldn't say enough uh, enough good things about it, and I think it's really going to take off, and it's going to be important for our future. So, paint a picture for us on that, Brian. What will vertical farming look like? So, it's essentially a, a building uh, that is a tower. It has kind of snooker table sized trays on which you're growing plants typically under LED light and then you have kind of mechanical systems that enable you to move the trays around. Um, It means that you can grow enormously more on a a particular piece of land, Mm. you know, sort of 60 times more potentially on for, for, for the size of an individual piece of land. And you can also very, very accurately control and optimize the growing conditions. And it means, for example, that you can have much, much more locally grown produce, much fewer air miles, and also much, much better quality because you've got so much control over, you know, disease and pests and the environment in uh, in which the plants are growing, you know. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I think it's, it's going to be an incredibly important technology for, you know, f- feeding 9 billion people. Well, that certainly does sound like one to watch. Thanks, of course, to our partners, AIB, for backing all in. Now, on next week's show, we'll have the man behind Strong Roots food phenomenon, Samuel Dennigan, joining our panel. And in the Trailblazers hot seat, we'll have fintech entrepreneur Noel Morin. You can, of course, contact us anytime using the hashtag AllInBusiness. And please hit subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Joe presents All In, together with AIB, backing Irish business.